supply chain cybersecurity might seem like an abstraction until you were, say, NASA and building new ground stations to support the multi-billion dollar Artemis to Mars program. All those antenna signals, data processing, communication links. At the recent ACT-IAC conference on emerging technology, I caught up with Jenna Garrahi, Program Manager for Space Communications and Navigation, and she told me why supply chain cybersecurity and security really matters. We have multiple ground stations all over the world, and um, these are the two new additions. So we have a ground station already in Canberra, Australia, and another one in Madrid, Spain. Um, So we'll be adding South Africa and another ground station in Australia um, into the portfolio. And what do these ground stations consist of? What do they look like? These are not like a... 10 by 10 fenced in area with a little pole in the middle. Sure, 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 sure. So um, it's a a normal ground station. It's got um, several antennas, uh, you know, big operations building, making sure that we're tracking our satellites. You know, we provide 24 by 7 coverage of COM to the International Space Station and, you know, hundreds of satellites every day. So these new ground stations will just augment that portfolio. So these are antennas, they're computers, they're wiring, and there's a lot of software. Yes, everything uh, everything from guard Guards, gates, and guns to servers and um, dishes and everything in between. And these are manned 24 hours, or are they automatic and just kind of run themselves? So we've got a, a, a good mix of both. Some of our ground stations are operated by humans 24 hours a day, seven days a week, actually on the facility, and some of them we control remotely. And you expressed some cybersecurity supply chain issues there. So you've got construction, you've got, as you say, all these different, you know, computers to commodes and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. What are the big concerns? Sure, sure. We want to make sure that the products that we're using, the hardware and software that's going into building these ground stations are safe and secure. That at the end of the day, that we're making sure that um, our satellites are, are operating as efficiently and safely as possible. And that also, you know, when we have crewed missions, that our astronauts are absolutely safe and we've mitigated risk to the greatest extent possible. And these ground stations communicate bi-directionally, so they go to the spacecraft as well as get information down from it? That's right. That's right. Um, we are making sure that uh, COM can go up to the satellites and they're, you know, they're out there doing uh, science experiments and, and um, you know, looking for various things that we've directed it to. We've got equipment far out into the galaxy that's sending back data, and then, and then we get to analyze it when it comes back down. And let me ask you just a technical question. You said there's a series of ground stations because you have to be able to reach the spacecraft wherever it might be around the globe are they all synchronized are they all seeing and doing the same thing at the same time or do they operate independently yeah they they most of them operate independently we actually have um for the deep space network is a a fantastic example of a advanced technology that nasa has created um we have three ground stations in the world we talked about earlier uh one in Pasadena, California, um, up at Goldstone, uh, one in Canberra, Australia, and one in Madrid, and they are equidistant around the globe. They used to operate all at the same time, um, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but now we have it so that uh, whatever one is currently in the sun is the one that's currently operating, So that, um, and then they hand over to the next ground station. So we've been able to actually uh, create a lot of efficiencies with technology by handing off to other ground stations. So let me just postulate then, there is a signal coming from the spacecraft, it is received by an antenna, which converts it into a signal that is then processed by computers. Yep. So the weak or the links that you worry about then are that actual link between the antenna, you know, which is a something that produces uh, induction, right? And then that current goes to a computer. So that critical point there seems like 
the most dangerous area for supply chain. So we're actually, we're concerned about it uh, cradle to grave. So making sure that the when the signal is coming down, that we get a pure signal uh, into our antennas. And then once it's being processed on the ground, that it's able to get to the proper location um, safely and securely. So making sure that the computer equipment that's processing these signals are as safe and secure as possible, um, making sure that all of our patches and updates are completed so that um, we make sure the integrity of the information is available at all times. Right. So there are two dangers then, one that a signal or a piece of intelligence could be purloined, just filtered out by someone and sent somewhere it shouldn't be sent, or that something could be sent to it that could harm the mission or give you the wrong sense of what's going on with Artemis. So we make sure, especially with a program like Artemis, that all of our that all of our information is encrypted, right? We want to make sure that the data coming down is the integrity is kept as much as possible, and um, that we're able to have communications with our astronaut without interruption. So um, that's why we have also multiple ground stations and multiple satellites to, um, if something were to happen to one of our ground stations, we could fail over to, to another asset to make sure that we keep that comm constantly going. We're speaking with Jenna Garrahy. She's network integration manager for NASA's space communications office. And what is your strategy for supply chain security then in the construction of these new ones and, I guess, maintenance of the existing ones? Sure. So um, we have a pretty robust um, supply chain risk management department within NASA. As missions, we closely couple with them to make sure that when we have a, um, a roster of things that we need to purchase in order to, to build a ground station, everything from a fence to the computers to hardware, software, and everything in between, that we're constant lockstep with them, making sure that anything is purchased or procured for NASA is on an approved list. Um, and as we're going through the cycle, any notifications of any incidents with any of our vendors is clearly communicated so that you know we have instant information to make sure that what we have is um, of the best quality of product in order to implement at our ground stations. Because I imagine some of the products are custom-made for NASA, fabricated, but others like PCs and racks and communications gear and all the rack type of equipment that is standard, that must be something that it's tougher to get to that second and third tier of subcontractor? Yes, and that's why we rely so heavily on this particular department because um, part of what they do is working with industry partners, um, looking deeper into the second and third layers of um, the particular product that they're looking to purchase to make sure that we're getting um, exactly what we've asked for and that there's no compromise of the integrity along the supply chain way. And what about the physical security aspects of these? That might tie into the cyber yeah, sure. So, um, you know, physical security is a, a big component here at NASA. Um, we want to make sure that our our um, guards, gates, and guns are, are uh, completely up to standard. Uh, we follow State Department rules and we follow NASA rules to make sure that um, the integrity of our equipment is always secure so folks don't have inadvertent access or purposeful access if they're not required to do so. Now, the Artemis program is one channel. How do you collaborate across NASA? Because there must be other facilities, other programs that have the exact same concerns. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, within NASA, you know, we have a a big mission community. So within the Artemis program, uh, there's the Space Communication Navigation Office. We provide the comm. There's SLS, Orion, Gateway. So all of these various components that build into the Artemis program collaborate usually on a weekly basis. Uh, We talk about the good, the bad, the ugly. So any challenges that we've had that particular week or any triumphs that we had um, it's the constant source of open communication between these various entities within the agency can make us much more small so we can have these open dialogues. And you mentioned during the panel, during the ACT-IAC event, that components from Mexico, which is a can be a trusted partner, mm-hmm. but may contain subcomponents that come from China. Is that necessarily bad? 
That is to say, you might not want a major processing or signal processing chip to come from China, but maybe a capacitor or a resistor could come from China. Sure, 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 sure. So um, it's uh, China is not, you know, we don't bar purchasing equipment just from them as a, as a baseline. Um, there are definitely components in which we purchase from um, anything that doesn't have uh, memory or any, any particular piece of hardware that is critical to the, um, the success of the mission, but doesn't, couldn't introduce any inadvertent risk. So it's always, it always goes back to buying down the risk of um, the, mis- the risk to the mission. And just in the general communications area, have you had issues that you're aware of where somehow a signal went astray or someone was listening in on what was going on that wasn't authorized? Um, not so much from a, a listening that wasn't authorized, but um, it, you know, every single federal agency has had some sort of cybersecurity issue. Um, it would be I'd be uh, remiss to not say that the, absolutely everyone has faced uh, certain cybersecurity challenges, um, and we're no exception. Um, NASA's job, our mandate is is peaceful space exploration, so we're really leaning on the Department of Defense, Homeland Security, to provide us that extra bit of support and resources in order to make a much more robust program. And here's a question for, just from someone who likes watching flight radar or whatever that thing is called, where you can see all the planes flying in the world, you know, their destinations, when they departed, their tail numbers and all of this information. You know, late at night, it's fun to watch what's going on in the Mm -hmm. skies above the world. That information is ultimately coming from the government, from the FAA, and so that people that get it are not tapping into FAA systems, but Mm -hmm. it's put out there. Does NASA have the same type of program where just to deter people that might want to amateurishly say break in to hear what's going on just put out information that can be publicly made available about where's that thing orbiting who's aboard sure sure so we have um actually several websites that are dedicated to open source information providing the public where our satellites are at any given moment so um curious folks, scientists can can take a look and, and see where any of our assets are at any given time. NASA prides itself in being open and honest and, and providing an educational resource for the public in order to be able to see where we're at any given day. Jenna Garrahy, Program Manager for Space Communications and Navigation at NASA, speaking during the ACT-IAC Emerging Technology Conference. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to 
President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 
50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. 
Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.